Hi there, my name's Darcy, and recently I caught up with Dr. Julia Shaw, an Honorary Research Associate in UCL's Division of Psychology and Language Sciences. Dr. Shaw specialises in criminal psychology and is the author of multiple best-selling books. In this episode, we talk about her pathway to becoming a criminal psychologist and a fundamental question that has guided her research. Why do people do bad things? But first, let's take it back to Shaw's school years, when her ambition to become a psychologist grew from a deeply personal place. I got into psychology because my dad has paranoid schizophrenia, and so I wanted to understand what was going on with him. He was undiagnosed, he remains undiagnosed to today, but he, um, he obviously had a very different reality than everybody else. And then when I was studying psychology, I thought I wanted to become a clinical psychologist until I started training to become a clinical psychologist. And then I realized that it wasn't for me. And I decided to go instead into criminal psychology, specifically into research on criminal psychology. So I've always been interested in why people do bad things, but I only sort of by trying to work with clinical patients realized that I was, it wasn't going to be doing therapy with inmates or doing therapy with people who've committed crimes. It was going to be researching why people do bad things in general and how we as psychologists and as researchers can help the criminal justice system and help police to do their jobs better to prevent wrongful convictions and miscarriages of justice. Famous philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche once said, thinking evil is making evil. It refers to his contention that evil, and good for that matter, are not finite but rather subjective constructs that we create ourselves. It's an approach that immediately resonated with Shaw. In fact, it inspired the title of her book on the matter. So I wrote a book called Making Evil, The Science Behind Humanity's Dark Side, which is a scientific study of things that we associate with the term evil. Often when we as a society talk about evil, we talk about something that we assume is fundamental, that is sort of baked into either human beings in general or individual human beings, like we might call someone who's a serial killer evil, someone who's perpetrated genocide, someone who has done whatever the worst things you can imagine are, we often call them evil. And that has a really fundamental implication, which is that we often use that term to dehumanize others. And the problem with dehumanizing others is it makes us capable of the kinds of things that we usually refer to as evil. So in some ways, by calling people evil, we often become the evil we are hoping to get rid of. That being said, I also don't like the term evil. And so it's funny that it's on the cover of my book, but the point is really to study why people do bad things and how each and every one of us is capable of doing, I think, the worst things possible in the right circumstances or worst circumstances, if you will. So it's about understanding and empathizing with why people do bad things and trying to combat that rather than othering and dehumanizing. It's a fascinating approach to the notion of evil, especially in the context of a society that is so often conditioned to understand evil through movies or through the media, where in many cases it's a simple binary of either evil or good. Media can be, well, it can definitely be divisive when it comes to seeing the world as black and white. However, I think most scholars of Media studies, for example, would argue that a lot of things are representational. And so when we're talking particularly about fiction and we're talking about sort of heroes, for example, 
if we take them literally, yeah, then that's problematic. If we see, you know, there's this evil character and there's this good character. But any good fiction also includes the dark side of the good character and the good side of the dark character. So ultimately, also what these things are representing are our fears as human beings. They're representing an aspect of the human experience rather than, I think, being sort of literal characters. What I think is some, sometimes more troubling is when media or headlines in the news represent human beings, real human beings, who have committed crimes, for example, and they call them evil. Earlier, Shaw mentioned the importance of psychology in the criminal justice system, and a key pillar of her research in this area is in regard to human memory, in particular, false memory. A false memory is a memory of something that never actually happened, and there are two types. One is a partial false memory, which is misremembering a detail, maybe something someone was wearing, maybe the time of day. It can be trivial, it can be important, or it can be a full false memory. And so that is a memory of an entire event that didn't happen. And those can be what we call complex. And so they have all the multi-sensory details that you might expect in a regular memory of an event, like what it sounded like, what it smelled like, what it tasted like to be there. And as a researcher, what I'm interested in is understanding why we make these mistakes, because they sound like errors, they sound like a problem, but really our brains are these beautiful creative organs that are constantly creatively recombining information. And that's what a false memory also is. Most of the time, we don't realize that they're happening because these errors sort of sneak in. We, we call them errors. We call them mistakes. We, we call them lots of things, but they become really important in criminal justice settings. So exactly what somebody looked like, exactly what somebody was wearing can be crucial for identifying someone as a perpetrator, for example. And witness errors are one of the leading reasons why people get convicted who are actually innocent, whether it's a partial false memory. So as a witness, for example, you're saying that somebody was wearing something that they weren't, you can contribute to a wrongful conviction because you're potentially misidentifying someone. And as a suspect, and this is where my research comes in, you can even misremember committing crimes. And so through leading and suggestive interview practices, what can happen is that you can become convinced that you perpetrated a crime that never actually happened. So understanding false memories is really important for these specific settings, but they're interesting to us sort of in everyday context as well. Shaw's research has also uncovered ways in which people can manipulate their memory in a positive way. It's a process she calls memory hacking. So the term memory hacking came from a TV show that I was a part of, which was specifically called Memory Hackers, and it was all about people who intentionally manipulate or distort memories, or who use memories sort of maximize your ability to remember. And so the question is sort of how do you use this faulty system that's in your head to your advantage, including all of the things that look like flaws. So for false memories, for example, the things that we think of are negative. So we think of errors, we think of moments where you wish you would have correctly remembered something, but you misremembered it, and that was had a negative outcome for you. But there's lots of false memories that we have that are positive as well. We just don't notice them. And so what some kinds of therapy do is they actually capitalize on that. And so what you can do is you can use research on memory distortion and memory creation to basically say, hey, we've got this 
for example, negative experience that you want to what's called cognitively restructure. You want to change it and you want it to be less negative. And so certain kinds of trauma therapy use this specifically to change the shape of a memory in your brain and to connect that memory of something that happened to you with more positive things and to disconnect it from the negative things. So the fear, the negative emotions, and instead connecting it to things like, what did you learn from that experience? How did that change you potentially for the better in the long term in some way? And that's a really powerful tool. So that's a positive application of false memory literature. And that's one way in which you can hack your memories. In the midst of the COVID pandemic, Shaw embarked on her most personal project yet. She wrote her third book, Vi, exploring the history and science of bisexuality, drawing in depth on her own experiences. As a bisexual person, I didn't know anything about my own past. I didn't know whether there was a science or any scientific study of my experience or experiences like mine. And I, I just wanted to know. I wanted to see bisexual people in history. I wanted to see what research says about people like me. I wanted to know if there's a culture, if there's places for me, if there's spaces for me. And I couldn't find them initially, and I found it really difficult. So I looked harder and harder and harder, and I put out a tweet about in, in early 2020, actually. So right before the pandemic really got going in the UK, I had put out a tweet saying, are there any researchers studying bisexuality? Because I'm writing a book on this. And I had all of these researchers respond, which surprised me because I couldn't find them initially. <laughs> and so by the end of like April 2020, I'd accrued a group of about 50 different scholars who are all studying bisexuality all around the world in different fields. So whether it was psychology or sociology, we had someone in film studies, we have people in health, we have people in um, all kind in history, um, studying history, and all of these different researchers came together and, well, talked to each other, but also taught me about the actually really big world of bisexual scholarship. It's easy to say there's nothing out there because it's really hard to see it. But actually, there's quite a lot going on when it comes to bisexual people doing research into bisexuality, but also allies doing research into bisexuality. So the reason was to bring more visibility and understanding to bisexuality. As a personal project, I just wanted to know. And I know that from people who've read it and written to me, um, most people don't know these things. And I think, hopefully, this has contributed something to helping people understand and make visible bisexual experiences. Shaw has dedicated her career to applying the science of criminal psychology to real-world issues that she's passionate about. It's a career trajectory that would never have been possible if she didn't pivot from her initial clinical pathway. This open-mindedness is a message she wants to impart on those starting out in the study of psychology. If you're considering a career in psychology or criminal psychology like me, then some of the things I think are good to keep in mind are, one, you don't need to specialize too much right away. So I think it's really good to keep your ideas open. So much like for me, I didn't, I thought I wanted to be a cl clinical psychologist. And then when I tried it, I didn't like it. And I think that's really important is to try different things to see if you like them, because you might not 
And that is as useful to know as knowing exactly what you do like. So try various things. So do a test drive and be willing to reject things that you've once thought you wanted to do. The other thing is realizing that, yes, you might get a job in academia and academia can be a great place to work. But there are also lots of hybrid jobs. There's lots of ways in which you can be partially associated with university or do research, but also work in other areas. And there are also lots of jobs after university, even after an undergrad, that you can potentially do that are science related, like science communication, like working with the media, like working, writing books like me, um, where there are options available that sometimes academia doesn't talk about enough. So I think keeping in mind that there are Science is this big thing, and it doesn't just live at a university. Science lives in the world, and you can take it with you when you leave. A big thank you to Dr. Julia Shaw for having a chat with us. You can find out more about her work or purchase one of her books via her website, which we've linked to in the show notes. Thanks for listening. 